This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. White. For the past few weeks, we've been looking at an assortment of terrible beasts and monsters that grace the pages of the various monster manuals and bestiaries of our favorite fantasy games in anticipation of Halloween. For reasons that we don't feel the need to make clear again, all of those monsters start with the letter W. And of all the monsters in Dungeons and Dragons that begin with the letter W, the white is definitely one of them. Whites have featured in Dungeons and Dragons since the literal beginning of the game. They appeared in the White Box set, that is the very first Dungeons and Dragons game ever published in 1974. Now, the White Box is called the White Box because it's the color of the box, W-H-I-T-E. But the monster's name, which is phonetically identical, is spelled W-I-G-H-T. It comes from an old English word, but we'll get back to that. The white is a malevolent undead creature, and we should actually talk about that word, undead. It's a word that gets thrown around a lot, especially at this time of year. It's a word that has a weird sort of pseudoscientific weight. It's a class of supernatural being, right? Skeletons, zombies, ghouls, vampires, liches, ghosts, and whites are all undead, as are all sorts of mythological creatures, like Draugr and Revenants and Banshees and stuff, right? Well, yes and no. See, the idea of classifying supernatural beings, like concluding that the Yeti and the Sasquatch are the result of divergent evolution from some common ancestor species that probably crossed the land bridge between Asia and North America 50,000 years ago, or something like that, the idea of that sort of classification is extremely modern. And the word undead is relatively modern as well. It was first coined in 1897 by Bram Stoker, and it specifically described vampires. It was a term used by the monster hunter Van Helsing to describe immortal creatures who prey upon living mortals and multiply because their prey become undead themselves. And while today we think of it as describing a dead thing that has become an animate creature thanks to some sort of black magic, the original meaning of the term was more akin to something that is neither truly alive nor truly dead. But we digress. Today, undead means a dead thing returned to a semblance of life through some kind of magic, especially in Dungeons & Dragons. So the white is an animated corpse that is animated by its own malevolent hatred and evil. Denied rest because of its vile nature, it haunts its own tomb. When it encounters a living being, it is driven to destroy them, because it jealously hates all things that live. Now, the idea of a person being so filled with spite and hatred that their body won't stop running around hating and spiting just because they die is pretty horrible. As is the idea of the rotting corpse of a human being wandering around its own tomb waiting to murder any living thing just for the crime of being alive. But what made the D&D white truly terrifying was its ability to sap a hero of their experience levels. If you're somehow unfamiliar with the concept of experience levels, Basically, they represent your character's accumulated power and advancement. 
they don't just feature in Dungeons & Dragons. Many, many video games these days have a system whereby your character grows in power and gains new abilities during the course of their adventures, primarily by overcoming enemies and obstacles. And the white could take that all away with one punch. Imagine a supernatural creature that could punch you and rob you of your master's degree or bachelor's degree or high school diploma or driver's license. And also all the stuff you had to learn to get those certifications. That's why most gamers consider the white to be a massive screw job. It's kind of weird that such a terrible creature would have a name like white, isn't it? I mean, why would you call a horrible monster a word that was basically the old English equivalent of the word dude? Yeah, we kid you not. The first time the word white was used to describe an undead monster appears to be in 1867, and it was coined by a fascinating man named William Morris. William Morris was born in 1834 in London, England. From a young age, he was described as a difficult and temperamental young man. He did well enough at school, but considered most of his lessons pointless and only worked at things that suited his particular interests. But at those things, he worked obsessively. In 1853, at the University of Oxford, he got swept up in what was called the Oxford Movement, which was a call to reform the Church of England. Now, the story of the Church of England is a fascinating one, but it's also a complicated one. And because it's just a footnote to this story, we'll only cover it in brief. In 1503, Henry VIII of England was married to Catherine of Aragon of Spain to secure an alliance between the two countries. Many years later, in 1525, the couple had failed to produce a male heir, and Henry was growing increasingly concerned with his royal lineage. He had also had at least one affair with Catherine's lady-in-waiting, Mary Boleyn, and was now falling in love with Mary's sister, Anne. Henry wanted the marriage, which had been arranged by his father and conducted when Henry was only 11 years old. Henry wanted the marriage annulled. But Pope Clement VII of the Roman Catholic Church refused to annul the wedding, as Henry and Catherine had already consummated the marriage numerous times. So Henry VIII basically decreed, Oh yeah? Well, I'm Pope now, and I'm going to start my own church, and I can marry whoever I want. <laughs> no, seriously, that's what happened. Okay, we're embellishing a bit, but Henry VIII basically rejected papal authority and started the Church of England as a form of Reformed Catholicism. And most importantly, the King of England was also the head of the Anglican Church. What does any of this have to do with William Morris? Well, when Morris was studying at Oxford, there was a growing push to unreform the church a little. See, the Church of England had been absorbing more and more progressive Protestant ideas as time went on, and a lot of more traditional folks were calling for a return to its more traditional Catholic roots. And that movement, centered at Oxford University, became known as the Oxford Movement. And William Morris got swept up in it and became hell-bent on entering the clergy. But then, he got distracted by art and architecture. After reading the writings of a critic named John Ruskin, he became obsessed with Gothic and medieval architecture and how it related to social and religious development. After earning his degree, he began working with an architectural firm 
and then began traveling across Europe to study art and architecture. He became famously involved in the so-called arts and crafts movement in England, which revolutionized Victorian aesthetics, encouraging stylish interior design, and basically serving as a counterpoint to the bleak and Spartan aesthetics of the Industrial Revolution. Then he got distracted by poetry. And Iceland. We swear we're not making this up. He traveled to Iceland several times and began devouring Old Norse sagas, epics, and poems while he was also writing his own. Then he got obsessed with socialism and began participating in anti-government protests, including the famous 1887 Bloody Sunday protest in London's Trafalgar Square. Then he got distracted by designing new printing presses and fonts and compiling and reprinting the works of Geoffrey Chaucer. And then ultimately, he got distracted by his own death. It was during the Iceland phase of his life that Morris decided that undead crypt dwellers should be called whites. After making a name for himself publishing several poems, he decided in 1867 to translate a classic Norse epic known as Grettir's Saga. Grettir's Saga tells the story of a powerful young man who is outlawed and exiled from Iceland. During his exile, he has many adventures in Norway, fighting demons and monsters. He returns to Iceland after three years and exiles a malicious ghost. But the ghost curses Grettir before he dies. Soon thereafter, Grettir accidentally starts a fire and several people are burned to death, so he is outlawed and exiled again. He is forced to commit other crimes to survive and lives in secrecy. He is pursued by bounty hunters, attacked by trolls, and tormented by supernatural horrors until he becomes paranoid. Eventually, bounty hunters with the help of witches overwhelm and kill Grettir. At one point, during his travels in Iceland, Grettir ends up wandering in a barrow, a tomb, and he is set upon by undead creatures known as Draugr. We talked about those a long time ago in our episode about the doppelganger. Well, Morris didn't know quite how to translate the word Draugr, so he chose the word white. Incidentally, the whites of Morris's translation of Gretir's saga actually indirectly inspired the whites of early Dungeons and Dragons. See, in The Fellowship of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien, the hobbit hero Frodo and his friends also end up wandering in some barrows after the mysterious Tom Bombadil helps them escape the old forest and sends them on their way. They are attacked by the undead remains of the kings buried in the barrow, and Tolkien, drawing inspiration from Gretir's saga, named these creatures Barrow Whites. And it is those self-same whites that inspired Gary Gygax to include whites in his fantasy adventure game Dungeons & Dragons. Now, it's interesting that Morris was a fan of Geoffrey Chaucer's, because we need only look to Chaucer to see the original meaning of the word white, because it was one of his favorite words. He used it a lot, and it's almost impossible to discuss medieval literature without mentioning Chaucer, because what Shakespeare was to Elizabethan England, Chaucer was to medieval England. Chaucer was born in around 1340, to a family of wealthy vintners in London, England. His wealth and his education paved the way for him to become the servant to an English courtier, Countess Elizabeth of Ulster. Chaucer was paid well for his service, and was able to indulge his love of the classic Roman writers Virgil and Ovid. In 1359, 
Chaucer fought in the Hundred Years' War, but he was captured in France and held for ransom. The Countess of Ulster and her husband, the Duke of Clarence, convinced King Edward III to help pay Chaucer's ransom, and he was freed. He remained in mainland Europe after that and served King Edward directly as a diplomatic envoy. And he gained further respect in the court by marrying Philippa Roe, the daughter of a respected knight, Sir Payne Roe. Philippa had an excellent reputation in the English court, and thanks to Philippa's various royal pensions, grants, and annuities, the couple was extremely well off. Chaucer traveled across Europe, visiting France, Spain, and Italy as part of his diplomatic missions, and he studied various poets and writers, especially Dante Alighieri, who we mentioned in our Malabranche episode. But while he had ample time to read, he had no time to pursue his true passion. Chaucer wanted to write. After many years as a diplomatic envoy, Chaucer left the public service to pursue his dream of being a writer, and the pair supported themselves on Philippa's income. Until she passed away in 1387. The sudden loss of income and mounting debt forced Chaucer back into public service. Eventually, he even served as a member of parliament. Chaucer was an exceptional writer, and many of his works are still studied in colleges today. His stories revealed a great deal about medieval English life, culture, and society, and also provided a great deal of political commentary. Moreover, Chaucer was a talented wordsmith, and he often played with different forms, structures, and styles that had been unheard of before Chaucer. One style of note is the iambic pentameter couplet. That fancy phrase means the poem is divided into pairs of lines, which have five pairs of alternating stressed and unstressed syllables. For example, perhaps you've heard this little line. But soft, what light through yonder window breaks. Hear that? The da-dum, 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 da-dum. That's iambic pentameter. But that's not one of Chaucer's lines. See, if you've heard of iambic pentameter before, you've probably heard of it during a high school English class while you were reading the plays of William Shakespeare. But while Shakespeare made the tonal structure a household word for anyone who took a literature course in 10th grade, Chaucer was the one who taught all of the other English writers how to do it. What's interesting, though, is that most of Chaucer's works are actually a bit incomplete, and they are rarely self-contained. The one exception to that is a retelling of the Greek tragedy of the lovers Troilus and Cressida, set against the backdrop of the Trojan War. Chaucer's Troilus and Cressida are considered his only truly complete and self-contained work by many scholars. But his most famous work is the Canterbury Tales. The Canterbury Tales is a collection of 24 stories told by different characters who are all on a pilgrimage to the city of Canterbury. And although it is recognized as beautifully written, clever, and witty, it's also a bit of a mess. First of all, none of the original manuscripts have ever turned up, but there have been many, many copies. In fact, the collection seems to have been wildly popular given the number of times it was recopied. The problem is, the stories have been presented in different orders in different copies, and some of the stories seem to have chunks missing or else end very abruptly. So literary scholars are constantly fighting over the proper order to read the things. 
Then too, there is the fact that Chaucer himself stated in a prologue that he intended to write four stories for each of the characters. The first two would be told as the character was on the way to Canterbury. The second two as the character was coming home from Canterbury. He also intended to include 30 characters initially. So the collection of 24 stories that actually got written is a far cry from the 120 tales that he wanted to write. As we mentioned, Chaucer used the word white several times, and he used the Old English meaning, and that meaning derives from an older German meaning. The Old German meaning was creature or living thing. The Old English meaning that Chaucer used? Well, that meaning was person or human or man. But more specifically, he often used it in much the same way you might use the word dude. That is, it was a sort of slangy pronoun-like replacement used to refer to a specific person when speaking to or about them. For example, in the monk's tale in the Canterbury Tales, when describing a woman's chastity, she says, She kept her maidenhood from every white, to no man deigned she for to be bond. In other words, She didn't sleep with any dudes. She didn't want a relationship. Now, it might seem as if we're being flippant with this dude thing, but we really aren't. Because Chaucer started the habit of using it as a sort of slangy reference to a person that other English writers, including Shakespeare, would continue. Consider scene three in act one of Shakespeare's The Merry Wives of Windsor. In that scene, Sir John Falstaff is hanging out with his entourage at their favorite dive bar, the Garter Inn. Falstaff is having some money problems and has to fire one of his crew, so he fires a character named Bardolph. The landlord overhears and offers Bardolph a job-tending bar. His friend, Pistol, is excited for him. O base Hungarian white, wilt thou the spigot wield? Basically, that's awesome, dude. Now you get to tap kegs for a living. Bardolph admits, it is a life that I have desired. I will thrive. Which is basically, I know, right? Okay, okay. We admit that we're espousing a Bill and Ted understanding of classical literature here, and we're sorry for that. But white really did just mean man or dude or bro or compadre in the literature. It was just a slang appropriation of an older word that meant something a bit different. Which is exactly how it happened with dude, because dude used to mean clothes. There are basically two theories for the origin of the word dude. One suggests it began as a shortening of the Scottish word duddies, meaning clothes. The other theorizes that it is a shortening of the word doodle, as in Yankee Doodle. And that also has to do with clothes. See, while today we think of Yankee Doodle as a patriotic American song, once upon a time, it was used by the English to make fun of American colonist hicks who were trying to put on airs and look sophisticated. Wait, what? Well, you have to understand, there was a fashion going around at the time called the macaroni fashion. It involved extremely foppish clothing, garish wigs, and general flamboyance. It was also associated with extremely effeminate men. Needless to say, it was not exactly held in high esteem. 
The song tells of a dumb hick Yankee who goes into the big city and sees one of these macaronis, and because he's so clueless, he thinks the macaroni is a respectable aristocrat. The Yankee wants to fit in, so he decorates his hat with feathers and says, Look at me, I'm just like you. That's why he sticks a feather in his hat and calls it macaroni. Now, the doodle in Yankee Doodle actually derives from an old German word which means fool. So, how do we get from clothes to 1990s surfer slang? Well, in the 1870s, the word dude started to appear as a derogatory term for someone who was all duded up. That is to say, they were extremely well-dressed. In fact, they were wearing fancy clothes they could afford to buy at a store. Brand new! And that was the height of fancy. And it was mostly meant as a compliment. But there were some places where wearing expensive, fancy, store-bought clothes wasn't a symbol of status at all. And those places were located in the American West. See, in the 19th and early 20th century, during the American Western expansion, lots of wealthy Easterners were heading west to make their fortunes on the frontier. And the frontiersmen of the West considered them to be a bunch of clueless rich people in fancy clothes with no clue how hard life actually was on the frontier. They were a bunch of dudes. Actually, that's the origin of the phrase dude ranch. A dude ranch is not a working ranch. Rather, it's a guest ranch where wealthy tourists can vacation and experience the frontier life of the cowboys. In the 1950s, with the rise of the middle class, the definition of the word dude gradually expanded to include any tourist who tries, and fails, to fit into a local culture by imitating their style of dress and habits. And from there, it gradually morphed through the 1970s, the 80s, and 90s into a generic word for anybody you might be referring to. So there actually is a parallel between the evolution of the word white and the evolution of the word dude. See, we weren't just being flippant. And who knows, if Dungeons and Dragons survives another hundred years, the monster manual might be inexplicably filled with monsters like the Brosef and the Dank Meme. And we pity our poor grandkids, who will be forced to figure out where those words came from for the GM linguistic unit of the Stardate holocast. And hopefully, we'll be turning over in our graves and not wandering our crypts as a bunch of dead white dudes. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the Angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com. 